Hello and welcome to the Build-A-Bard Workshop. My name is Stephen. And my name is Simon. We're not experts, but we're here to take you through building a character in Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition. We have a list of rules that we work from when building a character which are as follows. We each build a level 5 character using a random race, class and subclass and see what we come up with. The goal is not necessarily to build the most efficient character, but to build an interesting one. We use standard array, standard racial bonuses, and characters start with 100 gold and an uncommon or rare magic item. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. Hello. Editing Simon again, being all quiet in ASMR because it's 2am and everyone's asleep. This is the second part of our bonus episode on how to build characters in general. Look at that two parts and neither of them hidden behind a paywall anyway if you haven't listened to the first part go and listen to it now if you have listened to it you're an absolute sweetheart and you'll probably enjoy the second part there is a lot of discourse online which i'm not saying is wrong or right i'm just saying there's a lot of discourse about it there's a lot of discourse about how dex is the quote-unquote best stat in D 5e on the face of it, it seems like it's the best. Okay. That's because finesse weapons and medium armor, light armor, and initiative rolls all benefit from this. And a lot of the skills, including stealth, sleight of hand, acrobatics, all benefit from dexterity. And people will point to strength as the weaker one because there's less things that require strength. Mm. But the thing that's occurred to me, because I always looked at it as you can just use a finesse weapon and then you're boosting your AC as well by making your decks higher. So why would you not do that? But the argument for using the bigger armor is that there is a strength requirement to a lot of the bigger armor. And mm-hmm. not everybody is going to be lucky enough to get mithril stuff. No. That's the other advantage to decks is a lot of the decks based armor doesn't give you disadvantage on stealth. That's true, and I think all of these add up to decks looking like the most attractive option. If you just have it in your head as like a vibes thing, it feels like dexterity is better. There are a lot of things I think you could change, such as initiative roles. I wouldn't be surprised if we see in later editions that goes on to intelligence, not decks. Yeah, intelligence feels like a stat that's not really fully utilised. There's a yeah. lot of casters that use charisma, for example. There's four. There's, uh, there's, you know, wisdom is also useful for perception. And if you watch mm. any streamed D&D game, you will see how useful perception is. For the listeners, I would recommend that one of you with the highest wisdom score shows proficiency in perception and the rest of you talk about that. Because I think... Our table, there is a real... And when I say our table, I don't just mean when I'm DMing. I mean when Kara's DMing or or if anyone else was a DM. We have these ideas. Perception's really useful. And then everyone's got proficiency (laughs) in perception. And I'm like, make a nature check. And you all go... Oh, crap. Yeah, and I know that's that's an intelligence-based thing and not a wisdom-based thing. I'm just saying that sometimes it's worth... like If you know someone's going to be a cleric, say, hey, are you going to take perception? And then maybe you don't take perception. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So strength allows you to take heavier armors. There is no combination of light armor and dex that is as high AC as full plate. The only thing that gets you close is if you take mage armor, which is using one of your spell slots per day, which at high levels isn't really a problem, but at lower levels that's actually quite a lot. And dex, that takes you up to 18. Mm. And medium armor master allows you to take half plate uh, remove the disadvantage on dexter on uh, stealth checks, but still takes up a whole feat to use medium armor to get to eighteen. On its this own, this is one thing that's quite sneaky about half plate because I always looked at it as like, why would you take half plate and not just save up for full plate? But I didn't realize you still got the dex bonus from it because yeah. I can't remember where it was that I, I where it was that I looked, but. D&D Beyond, where it lists it, it doesn't list it as having a dex bonus. That's because it's medium, a medium armor. Yeah. It's, it's medium armor, so it uses dex. And I didn't realize that until I looked online. It actually specifically had a column for dex bonuses. So I was looking at it, I was going, oh, it does have a dex bonus. Yeah. And I think it, it doesn't make that clear in D&D Beyond in the description that it's going to give you a, a dex bonus. Yeah. So dex affects two-thirds of armors, and you have to use something else 
all a feat to get close to what heavy armor can give you. And heavy armor, as your strength score increases, allows you to take better and better heavy armor. If you're looking to make a two-handed weapon fighter, and by that I don't mean fighter class, I mean something wielding a two-handed weapon, yeah. you want half plate and you want a great sword, great axe, etc., etc., so that you can be doing big hits, big damage, and um, and have a good AC as well. Here's the other thing that people forget. Two-handed weapons, which have the biggest damage die, and also allow you to use the great weapon master feat, are all strength-based. Is it Great Weapon Master or Heavy Weapon Master? Not the um, fighting style, the actual feat. Great Weapon Fighting okay. allows you to take minus 5 penalty to hit, plus 10 to damage rolls. Yes. And with that, your 2d6 plus your strength bonus is now 2d6 plus your strength bonus plus 10. See, that's where I was getting confused because I've got the fighting style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great Weapon Fighting, which it's not a great way of naming it if you, you're getting confused over them. I mean, I get confused too. Hmm. Uh, not that I'm the end-all, uh, the be-all and end-all of understanding things, but uh, I usually have a, a slightly tighter grip on these things. And even I'm going, yeah. is it this one? Is Can this you one? add four? Yeah. You know. Also, if you score a critical hit with a melee weapon or reduce a creature to zero hit points with one, you can make one melee uh, weapon attack as a bonus action. That's that's the return of cleave, yeah. really, isn't it? Yeah. So strength-based does allow you to take these feats which do astronomical amounts of damage mm. that you can't quite do the same with dexterity. There is still something to be said for, I'm going to take the biggest weapon I can <laughs> and do the most amount of damage. Yeah. So, that's me defending strength. 90% of the builds we make will be dex-based. Yeah, that's, that's how I feel. I think I always have this thing in my head of dex is the more useful one. Yeah. That affects more things. Yeah. It also there's a, a spell, ranged weapons. Spells and abilities tend to be dex saving, dex throws. saving throws rather than you Strength know having throws. a high dex for your your saving throws is useful as well. Yeah. Because there's quite a few spells and abilities that do that. I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah. It always feels to me. I always have that impression in my head. Mm -hmm. But the more of the strength based builds that you've done, the more I've seen the reasons. Mm -hmm. for going with that. One of the things we've discussed before is MAD and SAD. Yes. And this is an acronym. It's a TLA. It's a three-letter acronym. Mm -hmm. They're the ones that harass you at the airport, aren't they? <laughs> SAD is single ability dependent. If you're a druid and you take shillelagh, your melee attacks are now based off your wisdom. Your spells are now based off your wisdom. And if you take one level of monk, your AC is based off your wisdom as well, right? That's one way of being sing single ability dependent. Multiple ability dependent is when you have something like an Eldritch Knight. I think that's probably the best example. It's probably the poster child for it. And yeah. as much as I defended it last week, I was trying to defend it to be nice to it. It's not necessarily my first pick. However, you have... Well, I need to concentrate on my strength or dex to do damage. I need to concentrate on my constitution. I need to have my my intelligence yeah. be higher as well to make it worth taking certain spells as yeah. opposed to just sitting there with, twiddling my thumbs. Mm. Going, oh, I could do this, but they might dodge it and that's a waste of my one spell slot I get at level three. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So one of the uh, other things to mention about multiclassing is that all of these classes have minimums of 13 in the starting class and the other classes' main stats. I feel like Paladin, you need... Strength, strength and, and, and yeah. And for Ranger, you need Dex and Wisdom, hmm. as is true of Monk. Everything else, I think, is pretty much one. Someone's going to point out, actually, you need this for, for Rogue or something. Yeah. But, and I mentioned earlier, Fighter is Strength or Dex, so... Just to add that there. God, I'm, I'm covering the things I meant to cover. This yeah. is insane. Uh, yes, with that, multiclassing is often worth considering your ability dependencies. Yeah, because if you make a character who is... I'm trying to think of the worst possible example here, but if you've got... Sorcerer what, a Barbarian. Um, I was going to go for Barbarian Monk, which I know there is a trick build that does that, but Barbarian, you specifically need strength for the the abilities that are baked into yeah. the Barbarian build. 
but you kind of need dexterity and you need wisdom. Mm-hmm. So it means you have to have those abilities. And you want con as well, so that's like four abilities yeah. you have to consider. At that point, you're starting to, to get really, really difficult to build. I mean, if you're rolling stats and you roll four 18s, go for it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Pick the most bizarre class you can. Hmm. Um, I think what you're referring to is the total m- strength monk. There's, that you can reckless some... attack every no, single there, one of your things. No, there's something really stupid you can do where you can base your monk weapon attacks on wisdom or something like that. They, they, I've, I've got a feeling I've read of like something really complicated where you can do that. Oh, or okay. Something. There's one monk subclass where you're you can do that. You're not thinking of druid monk. No, I don't. Okay. Uh, I don't know what it is because again, druid and monk work together quite well because their wisdom. special abilities are both based on wisdom. Whereas if you multi-class something like a sorcerer and a wizard, you're gonna have problems with that because some of your spells are going to be based on charisma, some of your be- your spells are going to be based on intelligence. So it's going to be complicated to build that as a multi-class. That, in fact, a lot of the things that people want from something like a sorcerer wizard multi-class build. Yeah. is access to metamagic. Now we just have a feat that allows you minimal access to metamagic for one level without interrupting your spellcasting, etc., etc. So things to consider. Monk Ranger is the best multi-class. That's not true. The best multi-class is Warlock and anything else that uses charisma. Yeah. Specifically the Hexblade Warlock. You there take is wa- so, so much you can do by just adding a, a level of Warlock. warlock. And I mean, Simon's being polite when he says so, so much you can do. Because what he actually means is there's so, so much bullshit you can pull. Um, having a paladin that also takes one level of Hexblade to get smites back on a short rest. At level three, two levels of paladin, one level of warlock. You, yeah. you are getting your smites back on a short rest. You're using your charisma modifier to attack and do Eldritch Blast. And when you hit level four and you take a second level of Warlock, you're now doing Agonizing Blast and you're you're really cooking with gas. Yeah. There's some multi-class combinations that really, really work together because they're based off the same key stat. And there's others that are difficult. <laughs> so kind of in the same way that you were going with your Eldritch Knight build, if you were to play as Sorcerer and take one level of Wizard so you can get the ritual casting and yeah. you get six spells in your yeah, spell book yeah, straight yeah. off the bat. You know, you can take the ritual caster feat for that. But, you know, there's a couple of other things that you get with wizard that are useful. Yeah, yeah. So if you took that, like the wizard spells that you took, you would kind of have to take either things that don't have a saving throw or it's odd. There if, you, if your aim I'm, is to load up on yeah. ritual spells. Then. What, what I'm saying is there are ways of doing this and there are people who will say ah you can do it in this way and yeah you can Mm -hmm. but you have to do things in a particular way if you're generally multi-classing warlock and paladin for example those two classes complement each other very well I think paladin and warlock complement pretty much the other two charisma casters really well Mm. we spoke about in our actual bard build that if you took three levels of warlock you would have basically up to six extra uses of your music of creation feature the exception to this is two levels of fighter which are always useful for anything because (laughs) no matter what else you get you get your heavy armor proficiency your action surge which is you get an extra action per turn and you get your... Second wind. Second wind, and you'll begin with this. And those features, they're useful to add on to any class, mm-hmm. and they're not ability dependent. So if Action Surge was somehow... I'm not saying it is, I'm not arguing it should be, but if it was based on like strength or dexterity bonus, or something like that, or yeah, it, yeah, it affected yeah. the amount of times you could do it, or the amount of stuff you got from it, if it was somehow ability dependent, that would change it. But there are so, so many classes that can benefit from just two levels of fighter. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a thing that's Did not you mention, ability dependent. I, I do apologise if you mentioned it. You get a fighting style as well. Fighting styles are incredibly it. useful. If you're playing a barbarian, two levels of fighter to pick up either two weapon fighting or mm. great weapon fighting, etc., etc., and action surge... You are you are one of the deadliest things on the table, even for something like mm. paladin. Taking paladin to sixth level, two levels of fighter, and the rest mm. sorcerer, just so you've got loads of spell slots. 
Yeah. If, Simon pulled whereas, a face just then. Whereas, was, good God, is he doing it again? <laughs> whereas most of the classes are going to be, multi-classing will give you extra abilities that sort of thematically fit that extra class. The two levels of fighter are just, they're, they're just useful to anyone. Yeah, they're useful to wizards because you now have an extra, extra health points and you can then be a wizard in full play. Yeah, you can heal yourself. That's another key thing about yeah. previous versions of D&D. Caused problems for spellcasters, the heavier armor you got and you had to take specific feats so that like light armor wouldn't affect your spell casting and then i think there was another feat that you took on top of that so you could take medium armor without it affecting your mm -hmm. spell casting but you know having full plate armor in previous versions of DD was a bad idea for spell casters whereas now if you've got the proficiency for it and you've got the strength score for it have at it yeah but the thing to point out there I suppose, is that let's not talk about wizard, but talk more generally about spell slots and proficiencies. For a spellcaster such as a wizard, a warlock, or a sorcerer, maybe even druid and cleric, and bard, to get heavy armor proficiency, they would have had to invest in their strength or dexterity, and they probably would have had to invest in strength if they want heavy armor to wear the heavy armor. Yeah. And they would also sacrifice, if you, even if it's just one level of fighter, that is one whole level of spellcasting two new spells known, yeah. etc., that they're sacrificing just to get that heavy armour proficiency. And whereas you actually can take light armour, lightly armoured, moderately armoured, and heavily armoured, whilst you can take those feats in order, would you? When you could also be taking telekinetic, telepathic, shadow-touched, yeah. etc. But coming back to our favourite boy, the Warlock, I mm -hmm. mean, you get medium armour proficiency if you take hex... Hexblade. Yeah. I always get the Hack to the Blade and Hexblade. My brain just muddles the two up. I know that like with that you've got the option of having it based on your charisma score instead. Yep. You've got the medium armor proficiency, which yep. is still useful, and you've got spell slots that come back on a short rest. I'm going to say something that a lot of people think, mm -hmm. but it's somehow weirdly controversial. The Hexblade is a fix for Pack to the Blade. Like That one level of Hexblade fixes Pack to the Blade. Pact of the Blade should have used your Charisma modifier to attack with, and it should have given you medium armor proficiency. That's yeah. what it should have done. Because mm -hmm. if you look at how much you can do with the Pact of the Tome or the Pact of the Chain, maybe not so much the Pact of the Talisman, but I, I actually don't know enough about Pact of the Talisman to comment. I just yeah. know a lot of people are kind of mm, with it. Pact of the Chain, you can take invocations that allow your familiar to be an absolute badass on the battlefield. Yeah. Pact of the Tome allows you to ritual cast and take rituals from any spell list. <laughs> that's kind of incredible so yeah Hexblade's kind of a fix for Pact of the Blade but yeah is there anything else we wish to cover I think the inventory we've covered what we wanted to say on that which is sort of which weapon which mm -hmm. weapon do you choose and do you base on strength or dex because of that I think we've covered that let's discuss feats very briefly yeah there is a colloquial term in terms of feats. Feats are an option where at level four, you can either choose to add plus two to one score or plus one to two scores of your choice, or you can take a feat. There is a colloquial term which is half feat. Mm. A half feat adds plus one to a score and gives you a little bonus. There is a growing consensus online that some of the half feats are now full feats with a plus one, and what the hell happened? Some of them are, yeah. Some of them do feel like that. I don't think it's all of them, though. I must be honest. That said, a half feat can be really good when you've taken your 15 in your primary stat, and you get a plus two in your primary stat, and then you go, shit, I've got a 17. It's sitting at 17, and as Steve said before, you get a plus one to your saves and skill checks, and attacks that are based on a stat. Even numbers. Uh, even numbers. Yeah. So if you've got an odd number sitting in your build, it irritates the hell out of me. <laughs> I really, really don't like looking at an odd number in my build. The only time an odd number is good is if it's a 13, and that lets you either multi-class or it lets you take certain feats. I think I've mentioned before, a uh, ritual caster as a feat is really useful for sorcerers mm -hmm. because it vastly expands the amount of spells that you know, but you need a 13 in intelligence or wisdom, and I don't think that's dependent on class. It seems like you should need a 13 in wisdom if you want to take from the cleric or druid list, and you should need a 13 in intelligence, intelligence. if you want to take from the mm -hmm. wizard list. 
but it you just need a 13 in one of those two stats and However, i kind of messed up a character by i gave them nine strength rather than making it a 13 in wisdom or intelligence intelligence oh, what was i going to say uh, it must be said that when you pick Ritual Cast Defeat, your ability score to cast those spells is the ability score of that class that you pick your Ritual Spells from. Yeah. So if you pick Wisdom, if you raise your Wisdom to 13 and you still pick the uh, Wizard Spell List, you can do that, but it means that if there's any bonuses to add, that will come from your Intelligence stat, not your Wisdom stat. Yeah, that's a, a little a little niggly bit there. That's uh, mm. sometimes a bit of a pain. But yeah. with spell feats, one of the things that I wanted to say is one of the feats that is popular yeah. for doing that is magic initiate, because that gives you two cantrips and a level one mm -hmm. from whatever spell list you want. Mm -hmm. uh, they all have to be from the same spell list. Yeah, because yeah. you choose magic initiate wizard, magic initiate magic druid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Blah 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 blah. It's very tempting because it gives you those two cantrips and a first level spell. The weakness of it is that you only get that first level spell once a day. Mm -hmm. Whereas with the two that will probably feature quite heavily because I love them at the moment are shadow touched and fey touched mm -hmm. because not only are they half feats not only do they bump one of your stats the first level spell that you choose you can cast that using your normal spell slots so i have used magic initiate in the past with a fighter to give them a couple of cantrips so that they could do extra stuff out of combat i think it was uh perdition had thaumaturgy message mage, mage hand no thaumaturgy mage hand and shield. I think initially they had identify as the first oh, level. Oh yeah, spell. they did take. Initially they had identify as the first level spell, but I just wasn't getting any use out of it, and so my DM was very generous and let me change that for shield. So I have one use of shield a day as a fighter with the half feet. So with shadow touched and with fey touched, not only do you get a second level spell, which is either invisibility for shadow touched or misty step for fey touched. You also get a level one spell, and then you can cast that using your normal mm -hmm. spell slots for that thing. So that is a really powerful bolt-on yeah. for a character. Should be pointed out that if you're talking about a druid taking magic initiate cleric and getting sacred flame on your druid, and another cantrip, maybe another damaging cantrip, mm. and a first level spell that only clerics learn, that can be really, really useful for a spellcaster. Yeah. But for something with like limited spell slots, here, have this once a day for free, and if you want to use your spell slots, you can. It's very useful. I mean, one of the, the uses that I can think is you could, if you just want a little bit extra usefulness, you could take Magic Initiate Cleric, mm -hmm. and then you take Guidance, Toll the Dead, and for a first level spell, I don't know. Healing Word. Yeah, Healing Word. You could take Armor of Faith. Is it Armor of Faith that gives you plus two AC? I don't know. I think, I think you have to cast that on someone. I think you have to cast that on someone else. But you could look at, at doing something like that. The other thing that I thought would, would be useful would be if you take uh, Magic Initiate Wizard. Uh, Armor of Faith is a second level spell. Oh, okay. I know there's a first level spell that gives you something, but I think you can only cast it on other people. Shield of Faith? Could be Shield of Faith. There you go. See, I may not get the name right, but I know that, I know that was a thing. Mm -hmm. Or the Shield spell, which I think we mentioned that in a lot of the builds mm -hmm. that we've done. That gives you a plus five to your AC as a reaction when you get hit. So you can, once a day, you get hit by something and you think, I really can't afford to take this hit. I'll add plus five to it as a reaction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's then gone for the rest of the day. But if you've taken shield from the wizard spell mm -hmm. list, or, you've then, or the sorcery spell list, you've then also got a cantrip. Wizards have got some fantastic cantrips. Absolutely. They've got access to. Uh, I think I've mentioned before, D&D Shorts, there is a whole video there, 100 uses of prestidigitation. Some of them I don't agree with rules as written. Some of them don't work as well as they imply because of this limitation of it only lasts for an hour. I've, I've just found out, I, I didn't realise that Magic Initiate also included Warlock. Yeah, so you can take... Um, Armour of Agathis for your Sorcerer or Bard. 
Well, you could take armor of Agathis. You could take hex. You can have it. You can have hex floating around once a day. Yeah, you can also have, and you can still move it as a bonus action. Eldritch Blast, which the reason that we keep going on about Eldritch Blast being so useful as compared to say Firebolt or something like that is D10 damage is very good mm-hmm. for our builds. We're building at fifth level, so that's the point at which cantrips two D10 becomes two D10. It's force damage, which very very few things mm-hmm. resist. Whereas if you've got Firebolt, you know, all you've got to do is come up against a Fire Elemental, which is... Or a Water healed. Elemental. Well, a Fire Elemental, which is healed by it, oh, yeah, yeah, or yeah. another type of Elemental or another type of creature that's either got resistance to it or immunity to it. So force damage is very, very mm-hmm. useful. That's Magic Initiate. I, I really like it as a feat... I go a bit back and forth in whether if I've got a caster mm. whether to use magic initiate or whether to use fey touched or shadow touched one of the touched yeah I mean if I'm picking a fighter and I'm going battle master and I also want to pick up booming blade then I would choose magic initiate because you get cantrips yeah that's one thing that if you've got the cantrips they're what 4th edition would refer to as at will you know they don't use up a spell slot you can always just cast them in combat whereas if I was a caster I would probably take shadow touched or fey touched and I would probably take fey touched over shadow touched just because misty step has more potential than invisibility I think so, yeah, and it, I don't think there are any other feats that give you a second level spell as a. Well, I'm sure I could find like one, that, but yeah. as a general rule, there are a few. <laughs> I'm just having a look through some of the other feats. Alert is an interesting one. Plus five bonus to initiative. Can't be surprised while you're conscious. Abria Iyengar really threw Brennan Lee Mulligan for a loop with that one because. In a role play, he had a character betray her by, you know, walking up behind her and, and stabbing her. And he, you know, went through the thing of describing this. And she, she said, Brennan, I have alert, which means I can't be surprised while I'm conscious. And, it, you know, open mouth gaping because he's like, oh, OK, so she doesn't stab you then. Mm. That changes a lot going <laughs> forwards. Uh, other creatures don't gain advantage on attack rolls against you as a result of being unseen by you. So that's rogues can sod off with their uh, sneak attack damage. Yeah, man. There are a lot of feats, ladies and gentlemen, and envies, mm. and everyone else, that are not picked. And that's not because they're bad. It's because they're so situational that sometimes it's not worth doing. So, for example, I'm going to look at the skilled feat which gains Mm -hmm. proficiency in three skills or tools of your choice. The only people who would take this are a rogue and a bard, or maybe an artificer, because they're the ones who are going to do most of the skill checks or tool check. But again, if you're not playing for optimization, if you're just playing to have a character who's interesting, you might choose to take that feat with a fighter so that you actually have bonuses to some of your non-combat skills, so you can actually join in when you're not in combat. But I would take Skill Expert then, mm. which is the Tasha's reboot of it, yeah. broadly. Which is, increase one ability score of your choice by one. You gain proficiency in one skill of your choice. Choose one yeah. skill in which you have proficiency. You now have expertise. Expertise is doubling your proficiency bonus. So, if you don't know what feats to take, there are three that are always worth mentioning. Mm-hmm. The top one that I would say is Lucky. Lucky is essentially you get three rerolls per day. So if you can't think of anything else to do and you have a feat for whatever reason, and like if you don't particularly feel like you would benefit from increasing a score, having three re-rolls a day is huge. Lucky is a bit of a... It's a bit of a shit of a feat, really. <laughs> if you're a DM and you're looking at a player who's got lucky, they're going to cause you problems. And I'm saying that in a joking way. I'm not saying that... You know, we, we've said before, you shouldn't really be having an adversarial relationship with your players to that extent. But a lot of your plans are going to go awry if you've got a character who who has lucky. That character having three re-rolls a day is just going to have a lot of extra things go their way. It's, it's a good feat if you can't think of anything else. I'm going to make the case for the Skulker feat. So Skulker allows you to hide when you're lightly obscured from the creature from which you're hiding. For a rogue, this is almost essential. When you're hidden from a creature and miss it with a ranged weapon attack, making the attack doesn't reveal your position, which means essentially if you've got two attacks and the first one fluffs, the second one can still have advantage. And thirdly, dim light doesn't impose disadvantage on your wisdom perception checks relying on sight. That's really good. Yeah. 
Oh my god, imagine putting that on a Twilight Cleric. With 300 feet of dark vision. They see everything. Yeah. And no disadvantage. Ever. We've mentioned Sa- uh, Shadow Touch and Fae Touched. Sentinel. I, yeah, I was going to mention Mobile and Sentinel because they're you, kind you of... They're not exact opposites of each other, but they, they kind of work in different ways where Mobile... Your speed increases by 10 feet, so that's great. When you use the dash action, difficult terrain doesn't cost you extra movement on that turn. When you make a melee attack against a creature, you don't provoke opportunity attacks from that creature for the rest of the turn, whether you hit or not. With a monk, if you have multiple attacks per round, all you need to do is attempt to hit an enemy. You essentially get disengaged for free. They don't get an opportunity attack when you move to the next enemy, whether you hit them or not. So for hordes of griblies or little groups of weak opponents that are causing problems because there's lots of them, your monk can just bounce around them and see how many they can hit in a turn. The opposition to that is Sentinel, which... Oh, you want me to talk about Sentinel? Yeah, if you, you Sentinel? Do, I did Mobile, you do Sentinel. Sentinel is essentially not letting anyone get away from you. Mm. And this is why it's the opposite of mobile. When you hit a creature with an opportunity attack, the creature's speed becomes zero for the rest of the turn. Mm-hmm. Creatures provoke opportunity attacks from you even if they take the disengage action before leaving your reach. When a creature within five feet of you makes an attack against a target other than you, you can use your action to make a wele, a wele weapon. A melee weapon attack against the attacking creature. <laughs> We mentioned that when we were having the discussion about tanking, where I was saying, oh, there's not really any way to stop a creature, and you instantly said Sentinel, because if they try to move past you and you get an attack of opportunity, you just twat them and go, no, thank you. And then they're stuck where they are. If you've got a glaive or a polearm, then you've got... 10 feet of reach. You've got 10 feet of reach. Yeah. I'm going to make a begrudging mention of polearm master. And the reason I say begrudging everyone at home. I hate Polar Master and I love it. I hate it because of its ubiquity. I love it because it's actually really good. Yeah. It's <laughs> and its ubiquity comes from yeah. it being really good. It's a useful feat, but you kind of hate how useful it is. I despise how useful it is. Yeah. I mean... Give it a read just so that everyone's on the same page. Okay. When you take the attack action and attack with a glaive, halberd, quarterstaff or spear, can't believe Trident isn't on this list, but there mm. we go, you can use a bonus action to make a well... A well, I've done it again. Hey. A melee attack with the opposite end of the weapon. This attack uses the same ability modifier as the primary attack. The weapon's damage die for this attack is d4 and it deals bludgeoning damage. While you are wielding a glaive, halberd, pike, quarterstaff, or spear, other creatures provoke an opportunity attack from you when they enter your reach. So this means that if you combine it with Sentinel, you are doing an opportunity attack, they enter your reach, you stop them moving. You can actually block a 3x3 three three grid. Yeah. with this because you've got more than that you can block a lot more space yeah it's, it's crazy yeah. it's crazy and uh, the other thing is I was thinking the other day about some cheese oh I love cheese you know shillelagh yeah and shillelagh changes your weapons damage die to a d8 would that change the other end of the weapons attack to a d8 ooh Shillelagh, because this is why it was cheeky me doing it on the holy thing. I just read through Shillelagh and it says it changes a club or quarter stuff or piece of wood. Mm-hmm. Now, I stretched the definition of piece of wood by saying, oh, my holy symbol is, my holy symbol is, I think it was uh, the symbol of Kalimvor on a stick. So I was like, it's the stick yeah. that's getting Shillelagh cast on it. Which is a bit cheeky, and I think I can see DMs just saying no. no. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely quarterstaff and club. Yeah. So, and it changes the weapon's damage die to a D8. Mm. So, in theory, could you shillelagh polar master? The wood of a club or quarterstaff you are holding. Yeah. So, rules as written, it would have to be a club or quarterstaff. So, a quarterstaff counts as polar master. Mm. And it says the Weapons damage die for this attack is a d4 and it deals bludgeoning damage. Right, so the description on Shillelagh, so that you can work out combining it with um, Polearm Master. Wood of a club or quarterstaff you are holding is imbued with nature's power. For the duration, you can use your spellcasting ability instead of strength for the attack and damage rolls of melee attacks using that weapon. And the weapon's damage die becomes a d8. So what's the wording on Polearm thinking about it the wording is you can use a bonus action to make a melee attack with the opposite end of the weapon 
This attack uses the same ability modifier as the primary attack. The weapon's damage die for this attack is a d4. I think that pretty much exclusively says no to shillelagh. Yes, there is a rule in D&D where specific overrides general. Yes, so what that's true. you need to find is you need to find which is which is the more general rule, which is the more specific rule, and the specific rule is the one that will tend to override the general rule. Mm. The reason Polar Master, by the way, is so, so good is because you're not just adding a d4 of damage. Because mm. a lot of people go, it's just a, an offhand attack with a d4. Yes and no. It's a d4 plus your bonuses. If you're a paladin, you can smite with it. For, for barbarians, you can crit with it and add your... You still get to add your rage bonus. For fighters, you have your two attacks and your action surge and your bonus action attack. And it's going to be a d10 and not... I think the maximum you could get with two weapon fighting is a d8 if you took the right mm. feats to go with it. So, yeah. Other ones I wanted to include... Polar Master is awesome. And I don't want to say I don't, I don't like it. I just hate that it's so ubiquitous. And yeah. there, there are some other things that need feats. I think versatile weapons need a feat. And I did hear someone say that they have a versatile weapon feat, which is while you're wielding it in two hands, you get a plus one to AC. And while you wield it in one hand, you get a plus one to a damage rolls. Mm. And uh, additionally, you can stow a shield as a bonus action. And if you can find that, I don't know, I've never added it, but if you can find that on D&D Beyond to add to homebrew, or you want to use that homebrew at home, I really would suggest that. Throne weapon fighting is the same, it needs a feat. And I think once we have those, the ubiquity of Polar Master will fall by the wayside. But still, the point remains, Polar Master's awesome. Yeah, but it, it's a good one. The other honourable mention I would like to make is Piercer, Crusher and Slasher. Yes, I was looking at Piercer. Is Piercer seemed particularly good because I build a lot of characters with uh, rapiers. Yeah, if you are a monk... Oh, God, yeah, because it's bludgeoning damage, isn't it? Once per turn, when you hit a creature with an attack that deals bludgeoning damage, you can move it five feet to an unoccupied space, provided the target's no more than one size larger than you. So this means, once per turn, you can punch someone off a cliff. <laughs> right? <laughs> When you score a critical hit that deals bludgeoning damage to a creature, attack rolls against that creature are made with advantage until the start of your next turn. That's everybody's attack rolls. So there's a couple of them, like Piercer, uh, Slash Crusher, and Slasher. and Slasher. They're for the three physical damage types, types. which is... Bludgeoning, piercing, and yeah. slashing. Stabby, swishy, and thumpy. Was <laughs> it? Yeah, because I, I started saying stabby damage during a yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. thing. Slasher... He reduces the speed of the target by 10 feet until the start of the next turn. Oh, also worth mentioning this is a half feat, so you increase your strength yeah, 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 or dex yeah. by one point as well. And when you score a critical hit, you grievously wound it, and still till the start of your next turn, the target has disadvantage on all attack rolls. I mean, there's no save, yeah. so this bypasses legendary resistance. So if you crit a dragon, doesn't matter how much damage you do, yeah. it's at disadvantage. Piercer seemed like a good... Because when I was looking at it, I'm pretty sure it does something uh, uh, where you get to re-roll the damage or something. Yeah, when you hit a creature with an attack that deals piercing damage, you can re-roll one of... Re-roll? Wow. You can re-roll it. Yeah, re-roll one of the attack's damage dice and you must use the new roll. This means if you roll a one, you roll it again, and yeah. even if you get a two... It's one more point than you previously did. When you score a critical hit that deals piercing damage to a creature, you can roll one additional damage die when determining the extra piercing damage the target takes. I mean, for a rogue, that's one additional attack on top of sneak attack. Yeah, that's uh, One additional horrific. dice, sorry, on top of sneak attack. That's pretty horrific. Yeah. And given that arguably the best dex weapon is the rapier, which is piercing. Yeah. 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 That's nasty. <laughs> One last bit, and we feel free to remove this, but I would like to talk generally about equipment and weapons. We're talking about, oh, if you take Piercer, you can do this. If you take Slanashi, you can do this. Crusher, you can do this. There are so many weapons in Dungeons & Dragons that do have situational uses that we haven't really mentioned because we're trying to talk more broad strokes. The whip is also arguably the best finesse weapon because it has a range of 10 feet. And yeah. you can whip someone and run away. If you're a rogue, you get sneak attack and you don't have to use your bonus action to disengage. You can then use it to hide. So yeah. the next turn you can get sneak attack with a uh, with a short bow or a crossbow or something. Oh, that's good. Right. Or you can just like whip, hide behind a pillar and then just keep doing that. <laughs> yeah, you can keep doing that. They have no idea where you've gone, etc. Right. Again, this is one thing. 
we had a discussion once about why on earth would you take daggers, right? Yes. And I said, well, you can throw a dagger, and you can throw a dagger using your deck score as well. Well, improvised weapon, you can technically throw anything. It's just yeah, that yeah, some yeah. weapons have the thrown property. And when it becomes useful, or extra useful, I suppose we should say, is when it comes with extra yeah. bits. I always like hand axes. I don't know why, I just prefer the idea of throwing a hand axe to throwing a it dagger. It feels right. Javelins, I want to point something out about javelins. They are a melee weapon. They are not a ranged weapon. They just have the thrown property. Oh. So if you pick up the javelin of lightning for your fighter, your fighter can fight with the javelin of lightning and it is counts as a magical weapon and then you can throw it and do a big line of damage. I never considered that. Yeah. I'm not saying it's the best play. I'm just saying people don't talk about it. Uh, what D6 is a javelin? It's a D6. It's oh, it a D6. is a D6. Yeah, D6. Okay. And it's piercing, so you chuck piercer on top of that. <laughs> it's good. It's pretty good for a thrown weapon because... Yeah. It's really good. And there's a lot of the starting kits will give you a handful of javelins as well. Yeah. And the good thing about that is it's it's easy for a DM to make you roll to retrieve your darts as mm -hmm. a monk or retrieve your daggers as a rogue or retrieve your arrows if you're firing arrows at people. It's more difficult for a DM to argue that you have to roll to see how many javelins you retrieve because your javelin is just going to be sticking out of the person. They're going to be very visible, I, aren't they? I would argue that your javelin could have snapped post-entry or you removing it could have snapped it and same with arrows. That's my immediate thought as your DM. Not that I want to pun punish you, but I do understand what you're yeah. saying. Like, if you throw and you miss and it doesn't smash, you, you yeah. can go and get that back. I agree. I just feel like that's one thing we haven't really talked about is ranged weapons like bows and things like that because <laughs> I tend to just, if I'm going to do a ranged attack, I tend to instantly think cantrip. Yeah, I'm Rather, the same. And I think partly, I think that's because we're building at level five, so the cantrips have just gone up to two damage dice. So almost all of the cantrips are, unless you've got a rogue, almost all of the cantrips are going to do more damage than a ranged weapon would at level five. What I meant to say as well is I personally wouldn't make people keep track of how many arrows or how many bolts they're using unless they're plus one or burning or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not my favourite thing to do, although mm. I would probably roll it into more of a... Um, you replenish your stores of arrows and it costs you however much silver. And that just be a flat thing when you return to town. Just to make sure that it doesn't fall completely by the wayside. The actual number I don't care about. But I would kind of set a, a default number of like, this is how much you replenish. With daggers and things, I probably would uh, make you replenish. Because if you throw them and lose them... But arrows, I kind of get you. You have a load of yeah. arrows and you pick up more yeah. arrows, you know. One thing we should point out about ranged weapons is there is a power build. Oh, go on then. Dexy Fighter with the hand crossbow and the crossbow expert feat, which allows you to ignore the loading property so you can attack twice, and then you can attack as a bonus action, which means that on a fighter, if you action surge, that is five ranged attacks. There's um... and almost always three ranged attacks around, and by the time you're 20th level, mm. that's nine possible attacks. Yeah, there's also kind of a way of doing it with Artificer, because there's an infusion you can put on a ranged weapon that gets it to ignore the loading property. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, there's something you can do with Artificer where you can do that. Some people, and I wouldn't be able to repeat this argument accurately because I don't remember it 100%, some people were saying that Crossbow Expert technically doesn't let you attack multiple times per round but i can't remember what that argument was in full give me a moment and i will see if i can work it out okay when you use the attack action and attack with a one-handed weapon of which the hand crossbow is you can use a bonus action to attack with a hand crossbow you're holding if you're ignoring the loading property you can attack twice a turn i don't know why they're saying it doesn't give you that it's something to do with not having a free hand but I don't fully remember the argument. I just remember something. Oh, maybe if that's if you're that. using a shield, you still need to load it with a free hand. But I thought that's what the loading property was for. Could be. I don't know. Editing Simon here. The problem with hand crossbows is not the loading property. The problem with hand crossbows is the ammunition property, which specifies that you need a free hand to load a one-handed weapon. 
So if you had the hand crossbow in one hand and you had a sword in the other hand, that means you don't have a free hand to reload the crossbow. Technically, you would also need the repeating shot Artificer Infusion, which states if you load no ammunition in the weapon, it produces its own, automatically creating one piece of magic ammunition when you make a ranged attack with it. So that's the only way to get away with not having a free hand to reload it, is to have the Artificer modify it so that it can fire without ammo being loaded into it. It's one of those very, very specific rules interactions that I would be more inclined as a DM to just say, look, you've put the effort into taking yeah, that feat. Exactly. And I don't think there's very many classes that can pick a hand crossbow straight up, and it costs mm. 75 GP. So if people want to make, make that power build, they're going to have to invest, and I would probably allow that. I think Fighter is one of the few classes that lets you take Hand crossbow. hand crossbow. It's one of the things actually, since we're on equipment, is fighters don't get more starting gold, but the starting items you can take, you can just take a hand crossbow, you can take a chainmail armor, yeah. and you can take like a heavy weapon, and then you can just go and sell those for half of their listed value, and then you still get more starting gold than other classes would. Well, put it this way, if, if you pick up, because so I think you can pick two martial melee weapons, mm. you could pick up two scimitars, and then, you know, sell one of them, and that's 25 GP you've got back, which is I think well that, on your way to was, health potion. That was one of the reasons. I think I rebuilt Grelm a couple of times, so I didn't really benefit from this. But the starting equipment, you can do that trick. And, excuse me, you can end up with more starting gold. Like, we say that you start with 100 gold. Yeah. And then on top of that, I sold a bunch of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To get extra starting gold. Throne, the versatile property... Versatile's good. Versatile's worth mentioning. Yeah. yeah. The versatile property allows you to use a weapon both one-handed and two-handed. Mm. And when you use it two-handed, the damage dice goes to the next one up, broadly. So yeah. I think almost all of them are a D6 to D8, other than the longsword, which is a D8 to a D10. That's completely wrong, because the warhammer and the battle axe, battle axe do, the uh, same. do the same thing. What am I thinking of that does that? It's the... This is one thing that I wanted to say from um, the damage types that weapons do. Mm. One of the things that I like that Pillars of Eternity did... Spear and, this, and quarterstaff. This might be something that people want to house rule, is the sword. Because with a sword, you can either do... In real life, you can sort of slash with it, or you can stab with it. In Pillars of Eternity, the damage type is piercing or slashing, whichever is greater for mm -hmm. a sword, to reflect the fact that you can do either of those attacks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas with an axe, that's only slashing. I guess you could stab someone with the, the point at the top of a, I mean, a particular shape of axe. Let's not talk about the rudimentary job that Dungeons & Dragons does of classifying weapons. Not so saying you, it's you, bad, yeah. I'm just saying it's very rudimentary. You do have to think about the damage type because in the same way that I was saying Eldritch Blast is good because that does force damage and not a lot of things resist that. When you're choosing what melee weapon you're going to use, I almost feel like it's worth having a backup weapon that does a different type of damage. Yeah, just, just in case, case there was a, a situation very early on in the one that we were running where we ran into something that was resistant to slashing damage and I had a great sword at the, at the time. Yeah. No, I think it was something that was resistant to bludgeoning. Yeah. Because I was trying to hit you, it and it was mole. just bouncing off. Mm. Yeah. I'm thinking you're kind of stuffed if you're a rogue and you want to take another weapon because other than the scimitar, all finesse weapons are piercing. Short sword is finesse, and that's slash. Piercing. Oh, okay. See, again, that's the thing. That's I weird to me, but... I would argue that you should be able to choose to do slashing damage with a sword because it can slash, but... Okay. Then you're entering the problem of, well, everyone's just going to choose swords. Let's really, really, really briefly touch on this. If you look at historical use of weapons... And we're talking. I'm talking about historical use of weapons because high fantasy often uses medieval weapons. It uses a general modified medieval setting. Yeah. So. 
a sword is so much more than the blade. Mm. You can stab with it. You can bash people with the pommel. In fact, there is a uh, a meme that's around on the sort of weapons side of uh, YouTube and stuff, which is the murder stroke, which is where you grab the sword by the blade and then end them rightly by smacking them with the pommel. Right? <laughs> There's a kind of a joke about it. Came, comes up in I think it's Fiori de Lib. No, because it's a German manuscript. Doesn't matter. Comes up in someone, and. Um, you know, like there's there's all these things like I should be able to do this. I should be able to, you know, do one d four bludgeoning damage with a greatsword. Mm. Yeah, you should. And like, if you really wanted to, you could do that. I would allow that as an improvised weapon. I was thinking before with the using a quarter staff, particularly. I think that should be allowed. I personally would allow that with shillelagh. But I would allow it as long as the person wasn't starting to take the mick and then started to take levels in Paladin so that they could... If they were just, like, <laughs> a druid who was doing that, I'd be like, yeah, I'll allow that. I, I, would, I would allow that. I mean, they can take Polar Masters to do the, the extra yeah. D4 damage. That's, that's not arguable. But, I mean... I would allow it because, to me, it feels like Shillelagh is, like... It's enhancing the wood so that when you make contact with something it has like an explosive effect or but, it releases energy. Yeah, but if you were to do... Right, there is a ranger fighting style called Druidic Warrior. You can take Shillelagh. So now if I take Quarterstaff, Shillelagh, Polar Master, would you allow me to do two D8 attacks and a D8 of polearm damage? Again, as a I bonus think action? this is a good point to round up on, is that a lot of these tricks for building and a lot of these things that are arguable with the DM, I would allow it as long as the person didn't start taking, taking the, the piss. piss with it and multi-classing into Paladin so that they could throw smites in there or, you know, action surging and things. If somebody if started you did to want the, to do that, yeah, by the way, started, you take Pact of the Tome yeah. and you choose Shillelagh as your cantrip and you multi-take two levels of Paladin uh-huh. up to five for extra attack and then... You could choose. This is how it happens. You're listening to how horrible ideas occur. <laughs> and then you'd be able to have a quarter staff that you could attack three times around with and smite with all of them and use your charisma stat. Yeah. I think that would be that my summary on it would be Never listen to Steve. Yes. Yes you can do yes you can do that if that's all you're going to do with it. If you're gonna start booming blade and smite and all sorts of bullshit with it then you can you can booming no. blade shillelagh yeah could you booming blade <laughs> polearm master because that replaces no and i'll tell you for why when you take an attack as part of the attack action booming blade is an action in which you make a melee weapon attack as normal which is not the attack action i looked this up because i think i said last episode that I don't know whether you can do offhand attack with Booming Blade. You absolutely cannot, and that also applies to Polar Master. No, because again, that's the problem that we've run into a couple of times with this is if you're a spellcaster, you can kind of make up for not having the two attacks at level five. You can kind of make up for that with things like Booming Blade or where you're adding an extra D8 onto the melee attack and things like that. Yeah. But that means that when you do Booming Blade, you don't get the second attack. But if you, that stupid build that I just mentioned, you take two levels of Paladin to get Smites, and then you run the rest Warlock, and you use Shillelagh so that you're bracing it off your uh, Charisma score, and then you do Green Flame Blade, which would then add your Charisma score bonus to another enemy. You're really piling on the damage at that point. That's a D8 of normal damage at level 5, plus a D8 of fire damage, plus your Charisma mm. mod, plus your Charisma mod to someone else. That's a lot. And that's very much the kind of thing that I would class as starting to move into the taking the piss category. Yeah, and I'm bringing it up because it amuses me. (laughs) No, it's nice to find those interactions and think, oh God, I could do this. Thinking about it now, I would not allow the D8 of Shillelagh to be on the offhand attack. I think specifically it says this attack is a D4, not the weapons attack is a D4. Yeah. And I think I would have to rule that. I mean, you're really only saving a maximum of two extra mm. damage, but I think you would have to... No, more than that, four extra damage. Yeah. You would have to, to stop people taking the Michael. Yeah. The difference there is if you've got, you know, a druid who has a quarter staff because they just thought, hey, I'm a druid, I want a staff. And mm. then they go, hey, could I use Shillelagh on that? 
I've taken Polar Master, I'd be like, you know what, you're a druid. That's Bonus fair. action attack is absolutely yeah. fine. That's that's a druid. You're, you're a druid. You've done that. I'll I'll say you can do that. If yeah, and, and the D8 wouldn't really yeah. be important at that point. If, however, you've got someone who's using sort of, as you said, warlock paladin trickery yeah. to try to get force my <laughs> two levels of fighter yeah. to take action surge yeah and all, yeah, all, yeah, all yeah, that yeah. if you've got someone who's starting to build a character like that i would that's then the point at which i would say no yeah <laughs> i would however say you can absolutely bring that to the next one shot where we're fighting tiamat or something <laughs> and we can see how effective it really yeah. is yeah anyway yeah. we need to round up because i need to go and get myself a chinese takeaway for tonight Oh, that sounds so good. It does, man. We have no money, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah Chinese takeaway. Oh, dog. So, to go back two points ago, yeah, it is nice to find those interactions yes. and those points where something clicks in your, in your head and you go, hang on, I was just reading about something that's like that. Or, ooh, I remember a spell that modifies that sort of thing. And sometimes it comes to nothing. Like mm. our, you know, rules is written. The discussion we just had about uh, Shillelagh, or the like, I was saying before. Oh, do they have a magic initiate paladin? There's no magic initiate paladin. I don't think there is currently any way of taking smites unless you have it as a warlock spell, or unless you have it. As yeah, a... I think the only smites that warlocks get is for the hexblade, and you can't choose a specific subclass to take your things from. Yeah, that's the, one of the good things about magic initiate is that it's from the blanket spell list, not the extras because there's so many spells that the we'll talk about this next week but the war cleric gets from a paladin spell list Mm. that you go i wish i could just take that from a monk or i wish i could take that for this i wish i could take that for that yeah and again that's the limitation that the system puts on is that it does kind of firewall certain abilities and it should certain classes and And it it should (laughs) it definitely it definitely should not just so that each class has its own particular flair or its own particular vibe to it, but also because there are some abilities that if they were used in conjunction, they would just be horrible. And you can sometimes do that through multiclassing, which is why I think a lot of the time you tend to multiclass because you think, oh, if I took this from this class and this from this class, you have that interaction. Also worth pointing out, when it comes to multiclassing, there is something to be said for a straight fighter at level 20 is more than likely going to be more powerful than anything you could build that's level 20 out of two or more classes. More than likely. When you're building to level 10, and most subclasses get their stuff by level 3, taking something to level 5 for extra attack, something to level 3 for an extra subclass and the extra abilities that comes, and then two levels of fighter to pick up action surge. I mean, if you've got three things that... Interact well. If you've got three things that interact well, I'm just thinking you could have, you know, three levels of Warlock, three levels of Paladin, three levels of Sorcerer by level 9, and that means you can, can pull your Sorlock getting things back on short rest yes, so you can really you can I mean, throw some smites you, in you, there you would probably pick out of that I would go one level warlock hexblade to get the charisma bonus to tag mm. I would take five to six levels of paladin so that I get my aura of protection extra track and maybe aura of protection and then it would be th- four to three levels of sorcerer to get mm. an ASI and or second level spells and meta magic but that's but- that build comes online at level 10 like the way you build that that's mm. a real pain in the bum. And it that it does actually lead to the point that I was going to say, which is I personally don't like builds that don't work before a certain point. Yeah. That was a, one of the things that I, I think I've said before I didn't like about 3.5 was to build a character who had two weapon fighting. Mm-hmm. You needed to get up to like level five or six to get enough of the feats that both of the weapons were functioning correctly. I would like to point out that I am very unlikely to pick a multi-class that takes way later to turn on. Like, the palace sork that we had, the sorcered in, yeah. the aberrant mind that I did, you are fine at every single level. Mm. Just the whole thing through. At levels 1 and 2 you're a full paladin, at level 3 you get green flame blade. At level 4 you've got uh, sorcery points that you can bring yourself smites back, and at level 3 you get second level spells and meta magic. Mm. For all of those levels it's useful. There are builds that you can do, like I just mentioned with that sort of Lockerdin. You can do it. Would you want to take that all the way to level 10 before it really, really kicks in? I don't think so. I really, really don't think so. It's fine if you're playing a high-level campaign and you're starting at level 10. 
Yeah. I think as long as, well, if the DM wants you to justify your character's backstory, you know, you can justify mm -hmm. it in the backstory what you did until level 10, which goes back to what you were saying about the character who turns up saying that, you know, they were killing demons and angels. <laughs> and now they've come to Earth for um, for revenge and they're like, no, you're, you're level one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But with someone who starts at level 10, you oh, can, yeah, you you can then have like, oh, I did this, I did this. I had, I a, running this, with, I had a running with Vecna and made it out of my life. You know, yeah. There we go. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you can put all of that stuff in because you know, presumably, if they've reached level ten, your character has had adventures before. Mm -hmm. I'm really, really, really considering actually building that nasty nastiness with Shillelagh. Unless you're doing sort of like a setting, like is it One Punch Man, where everyone has super, like everybody just has superpowers and that's just normal. Something yeah, the, the, <laughs> kind of. Everyone has superpowers, and yet there's a guy who, uh, who guy who rides a bike. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they... it's serious cycling is his main <laughs> ability, and he just pedals faster. He cracks up every time. Yeah. But I mean, that's the thing. You could play a campaign set in a, a world where you know everybody just like you know hits maturity, and then bang, mm. they're suddenly hit mm. with a load of mm. stuff. If that's the campaign setting you want to play, but I mean, most campaign settings, I think, if you're generating a character at a higher level, you want to say in the backstory, oh, they got fate touched when you know. A hag decided yeah, to pick on yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would. There is a difference between me, the person who turns up and goes, "This is a fun trick you can do," mm. right, and the person who actually plays at the table. The reason that Aaron, my hexblade, is now in sorcerer, is because once he performed the act that he performed yeah. when we got the next level up, effectively the pact was ended. Like he'd been asked to do something, he did it. So now all his power is him discovering the magic that he's... Because he's a shadow sorcerer. The magic that's happened because he's attached to the shadow fell mm. has now affected his body and he's now learning to deal with that. I'm yeah. probably never going to take any more warlock levels, even if they would benefit me greatly. Yeah. So the other thing I was going to say is, as a DM, going back to your thing about multi-classing, sorry, like starting at higher levels and thinking about it, I can't think of very many people who would shout me down. I would be very tempted to say... You can multi-class once if you're building for level 10. Yeah. Not to rain on anyone's parade, but I think if you're building at level 10 and yeah. you go, I'm taking three levels of druid, three levels of... I'm just picking this out for now. I don't actually think it'd be useful. But three yeah. levels of druid, three levels of ranger, and three levels of cleric. And I use all of these abilities <laughs> to give myself 50 attacks or, or whatever. Yeah. I would be really tempted to say, no, pick two. I mean... Multiclassing is a lot easier. It, it's different in fifth edition because you've got sort of your character level mm -hmm. and your class level. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're fighter two, wizard three, your character level is five. five. And there's a lot of things that are based on your character level, like mm -hmm. your proficiency score, whether you get the bonus your, to your cantrip, cantrips. cantrip yeah. damage is at, le is at level five, whereas your two attacks are based on if your fighting class is at level five. Mm -hmm. I always heard that ranger used to be severely underpowered because there were a lot of things that were based on your ranger class rather than your overall class. So there was a lot of ranger multi-classes that used to be a bit underpowered if you multi-classed. Yes, I think that Ta was... Tasha's yeah. has altered a lot mm -hmm, of those mm -hmm, things. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was about to say I'm the biggest advocate for rangers out there. I'm not. There is someone who's a bigger advocate for rangers. But I love rangers. And I really love that the Tasha's and... Xanathar's multi-classes have taken the ranger beyond just being Aragorn. They've tried to go for some really weird flavours, some like the Horizon Walker Ranger Man. They've it's also so so flavorful. They've also changed it so that your pet levels up with you better now, doesn't it? Yeah, so the Beastmaster, the specific things that they changed for the Beastmaster is that your beast's abilities broadly level up with your proficiency bonus and your wisdom score, I think. Off the top of my head, I think it's wisdom. But yeah, it's so. You can take three levels of Beastmaster and your buddy still gets better as you go, but you want to take more levels of Beastmaster because you get more features as you go. So eventually, your beast is doing like two or three attacks. A because you keep going, your beast is doing two or three attacks a turn, mm. and all you've had to do is a bonus action of, um, oh yeah, Boris, could you um, eat that person, please? <laughs> you yeah. know, And the, the armor class and hit points, I think, is more based mm. on proficiency bonus. 
I think there is something that's based on ranger level, but it's much of a muchness. Yeah, I just I, I remember hearing something about like the old intention of ranger was that you would just dump your old companion and pick up a higher challenge rating buddy, mm. which doesn't really seem to make sense with the idea yeah, of a ranger. I always think a ranger, like you know, they they have their buddy and their buddy is that's that's, that's their buddy, that, man. That's the one that sticks with them, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let me just find the beastmaster companions primal companion third level it essentially at that point operates like a familiar it takes the dodge action if you don't command it as a bonus action um, so if you forget it just has disadvantage on being hit that's yeah, nice yeah 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 you can also sacrifice one of your attacks when you take the attack action to command the beast to take the attack action this is at level three so at level three you decide my beast attacks or i attack the armor class is based on your proficiency bonus Right, so if it's based on the proficiency bonus, that goes up based on your character level. Yeah, and hit points is based on your ranger level. <laughs> mm. And it does damage... The damage is based on your... Um, oh, come on, brain. Yeah. I just remember hearing a lot of people were saying it fixed rangers because rangers always seemed a little bit underpowered as a class. I think it still is slightly underpowered in some ways. And I'm, I'm watching the... Um, the dungeon dudes rank every class in terms of their party role. So mm -hmm. they've done the frontliner, they've mm -hmm. done the utility and support, and at every point I go, but a ranger can do that as well. And mm. I think if they added the backup, you want a ranger in your party because a ranger can explore, it can frontline, it can be the beatdown, it can ut be utility, it can be support. And it always has those extra options that allow you to do that extra thing. Anyway, my partner is asking, when are you coming home? And the dog is asking... For, for Dindins. Is frog it? dog is asking, he might want the garden. Good boy. Anyway, thank you very much for listening. Uh, do you want to say goodbye, Frodo? Yeah. Come up here. Yeah, you come up here. Oh, that's yeah. a face. Oh, that's a face, Licky. Right, say bye-bye, Frodo. Yeah. Not to my face. Can you speak? Oh, he's, doing, he's about to speak. There you go. There you go, buddy. And we'll finish on that. That's the best note ever. That's the best. You are a good boy. Yes. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Built Bard Workshop with myself, Stephen, Simon, and Frodo the Dog. All properties and settings belong to the relevant parties. Produced by Steve and Simon and edited by Simon. Music is Dancing at the Inn by Kevin MacLeod and is available at freepd.com. And remember, respect your elf before you wreck yourself. So flavourful.